If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Take something iconic like the all-electric 2024 Fiat 500e. Add something electrica. Bring the swagger. And an Italian icon is remixed and ready to drop with its available premium JBL audio system. Tap the banner to learn more. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA, used under license by FCA US LLC. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Why did the British state decide to send criminals all the way across the globe to Australia? Was it really as grim as you might expect to be one of those transported? And what was the impact of the convict system on Australia and its indigenous peoples? To answer your questions on criminal transportation to Australia in today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, I spoke to Nancy Cushing, Associate Professor of History at the University of Newcastle in Australia, and the author of A History of Crime in Australia. So it's great to be speaking to you over in Sydney today, Nancy. Thank you for joining me. Thanks a lot, Ellie. Great to be here. So I want to kick us off on our conversation about criminal transportation with some real basics. Um, our Instagram follower, Mr. Favreau, has asked, when did transportation happen? And I'll just add to that, what exactly was transportation? Transportation has a long history of people being sent out of the United Kingdom after having committed various offences. So I guess if we go, you know, way back into the mists of time, uh, there was the the punishments like exile and banishment, which were pretty much, you know, you've done something so offensive, we don't want you here anymore, get out and never come back. Uh, but these weren't managed or organised sort of systems of punishment. That was, it was just something that that was meted out to some people. So it wasn't until the early 1600s that it became more systematic. And from that time, people were sentenced to transportation. And they were mainly being sent to the American colonies and to the West Indies. Uh, And so the way that that system worked and and it built up through the the 1700s was that people would be basically sold on to contractors who would take them across the Atlantic and then at the other end sold as indentured labour so that they had to work for someone who took them on for a period of time, often seven years. And 
it was an effective form of punishment from the point of view of the British government because it was helping to uh, provide a labour supply to the developing colonies. When the American Revolution happened in the 1770s, they were no longer able to use the American colonies as an outlet for these transported convicts. And they had sent about 50,000 of them by that time. And so they needed another place to go. And that's where transportation to Australia really begins. And can you give us a bit more detail on transportation to Australia? It's something that we're going to be focusing primarily on in this episode. What are the dates we're looking at there? The first ships taking convicts to Australia left in 1787 and arrived in 1788 right here in Sydney, where I am, uh, onto Gadigal land. So that was an important aspect of it, that at the time they thought they were going into empty space that that really hadn't been claimed by any other European power uh, and that was being, they thought, not utilised to its full extent. When uh, advice was being sought from people that were on Cook's voyage, because it was it was James Cook who had first navigated the east coast of Australia. And uh, one of the people that was with him was Joseph Banks, who was a botanist and became an advisor to the government. And, and he said, oh, you know, there's in, in Botany Bay in particular, which is just south of the centre of Sydney, there's only about 50 people living around there. They, they don't do much with the land. You know, it would be a good place for a colony. So we have a a real set of mistaken assumptions right at the beginning of this colonisation or invasion of of the land, uh, in this case of the Gadigal people who lived in this area. Uh, And so the the first arrival was in January 1788, and that was an expedition of about 1,000 people, so about 770 convicts, and the rest were the people who were there to look after them. So the governor who was in charge, uh, and then his civilian officers, as well as uh, marines who were there to protect the colony from other outside forces, potentially, that might be hostile, and from the Aboriginal people if it came to that. And I think throughout this conversation, it would be really interesting to hear more about the impact on Aboriginal people. But just to stay on this kind of early stage of transportation for a moment, apart from obviously colonial settlement, what were some of the ideas behind transportation? Why was it deemed a good idea? It seemed like a win-win situation because you got rid of the people from your society that you didn't want for whatever reason. And and the people who were transported to Australia, most of them were male. They were fairly young. The average age was 26. And they were people who'd been in trouble with the law, often more than once. Uh, And so it wasn't necessarily a first offence for most of them for which they were transported, but maybe their second or third. And, And these were people who were considered surplus population back in Britain, that they weren't people who were felt to be contributing to the society in the ways that were expected. And so it was a good thing to get rid of them. But just as in the 13 colonies, when they were being sent to Virginia uh, and so on in Maryland, in, in what became the United States, they wanted something back. So we still have that phrase that when someone commits a crime, they, they owe a debt to society. They have to pay their debt to society. But they were serious about it back then. And they really meant you have incurred a debt to society by breaking the law. Now we get your labor 
for the period to which you've been transported. And most of the the terms of transportation were seven years, 14 years, or life, depending on the crime that had been committed. Um, And so for most of the convicts, it was seven years that they were sent for, and they had to work where the government told them to work for that period of time. And so here's where the win-win comes in, because Britain gets rid of these people, but also gets the use of their labour in a place that doesn't have enough workers, in a place that they're just trying to invade, colonise, pioneer. And they can put these young men to any sort of work that they want. And, And so... They were the only workforce here. So when we think about, well, what jobs did convicts have to do? They had to do everything. And they had to do everything from building the wharves, opening the roads, cutting down trees, starting agriculture, right through to more responsible positions. So they needed to be the clerks who were writing down how many things were delivered and where they went. They were the constables in the streets who were keeping order over the other convicts. They were overseers. They would get an extra half ration, so they get a bit of extra food to be the supervisors of other convicts while they worked. So they were doing everything. And I'm sort of talking now as if all the uh, the convicts were male, but of course they weren't. About one in six were women. Um, And so they had to do the sort of jobs that women did back home as well. They had to do cooking and cleaning and childcare and uh, laundry and uh, working in textiles and, and so on. So all of this great work effort that the, the convicts were able to do all went in the directions that the British government wanted it to. So unlike if in, in a colony that was settled by free immigrants uh, who would usually arrive in family units, they couldn't be as efficient as workers from the government's point of view. So they couldn't just say, you there, you're going to go now and build this road. Because they said, I don't want to build a road. (laughs) No, thanks. I didn't come here to do that. But the convicts couldn't talk back or else they were insolent and then they were punished and they could be flogged up to a a hundred times. So most of them kept on the straight and narrow. So the the government was able to very efficiently extract labour from them and lay the foundations for what became very prosperous free colonies over time. So when you're speaking about a win-win for the government there, you spoke about the British government. And Semen Vitterbols on Instagram has asked, was it only Britain that transported criminals or other countries too? And we're talking here about the Australian context. Yes, well, only British convicts came to Australia, but they didn't only come from Britain, which sounds semantics, but they they were brought from other colonies as well. So, uh, for example, Australia took control in Mauritius um, through the Napoleonic Wars, and then so people who offended in Mauritius could be transported to Australia. But Australia was not the only place to which convicts were sent. Britain used other places like Gibraltar and Bermuda to, to punish convicts as well, and certainly other empires did the same thing with uh, the Soviet Union is probably best known for using, you know, sending people to other places as punishment with Siberia becoming, you know, just uh, so well associated with that form of punishment. You mentioned that Britain did use other places for criminal transportation as well. But I think in the popular memory, Australia is is really the one that stands out for many people. And Dan O'Brien has asked, why did Australia become essentially the most popular place to transport people? Was it because it was deemed, as you say, incorrectly, 
unused, uninhabited land? Yeah, I think that's that's it. About 45% of the convicts ever transported by Britain were sent to Australia. So, so it is pretty big. And the one that is the largest colony to receive convicts through the actions of the British is actually the Andaman Islands. And uh, that's in the Bay of Bengal. And so that was for not convicts from Britain, but convicts from the, the local colonies that, that Britain had. And so about, yeah, 85,000 people were sent there, which is more than were sent to any single colony in Australia. So in some ways, maybe it's, <laughs> we remember it, because uh, Australians remember it, because we really do see it as the beginning of the the settler colonist nation here in Australia, um, as as the beginning of a, a cataclysmic event for Indigenous people. There were large numbers, as I said, of convicts sent to the United States, but nobody talks about it. Even historians, there are some who've, who've been interested in it, but it's not something that shapes their national ethos. I think it was that opportunity that was seen by the British that this was a chance, especially after the loss of the American 13 colonies, to rebuild the empire and to take it out of that North American sphere and down to the Southern Hemisphere uh, to a place that was very remote from Britain, which they counted as beneficial in a couple of ways. The first was that it would be very hard for convicts to return. That was counted in its favour. And the other thing was that because Britain didn't have a good base down here. This would be a place that trading ships and naval ships would be able to call in and get fresh water and supplies and even uh, to replenish the crew, um, to be a base for whaling industry. So being far away from Britain was actually counted as a real asset and, and a reason to be really committed to these new colonies in the Southern Oceans. So a lot of the questions that we've had in have focused on individual experiences of transportation. So I wonder if we could turn to some of those now. Probably the most common question that people asked us about this subject, including Crusading Fish and Sea Valley on Instagram, was what crimes led to transportation? During the time of transportation to Australia, the government was run by people who had a lot of property. So ordinary working men couldn't vote. So the people who were making all the laws were the people who had a lot of stuff. And what they wanted to do was protect their position and protect their goodies from other people who were taking them. So they kept passing laws and law and law and law after law through the 17 and 1800s or into the 1800s that were protecting private property. And it came to be the case that there were 200 different laws that all had capital punishment attached to them. And the vast majority were about crimes against property. These were capital punishment crimes, but they could be commuted to transportation. And that was how a lot of people ended up in Australia. Either they committed a crime for which the punishment was transportation directly or a capital crime that was commuted. And so they did all kinds of things. They uh, committed arson. um, They passed counterfeit coinage. They might have been bigamists. They broke an oath that they'd sworn. So there were lots of things they did, but the vast majority had stolen So, and they were called different things, larceny, burglary, um, stealing, pickpocketing, all of those things. But 
any way you slice it, it was taking someone else's property. And that was the, the offense for which the vast majority of people were transported. And you might, people might have thought, oh, gosh, I thought they were the really horrible people, the people who had committed violent assaults or murders or rapes. But actually, no. So through most of the convict period, those crimes were still being punished by capital punishment. So those were the people who were being hanged. Uh, and it was the much lesser criminals who were receiving these sentences of transportation. Well, this is subjective, but Gareth Taylor has asked, what was the most minor crime that led to transportation? Yes, and and I think some of these superlative questions, the oldest, the youngest, the most minor, the worst, are very, very hard to answer because we don't, we don't we don't know. And also you have to think about the context. Uh, I was looking at some things today. Uh, a woman who was transported for stealing honey, another one who was transported for stealing potatoes. So those those were Irish women in the 1830s. And you can imagine the backstory that's behind someone stealing honey or potatoes. But there are also lots of women who were transported for stealing clothing. And again, you might go, oh, the poor thing, you know, she's wearing rags, she's cold and she steals a jacket or something. But usually it wasn't like that. These were mainly people who were employed in someone else's house as a servant and who wanted a bit of money. Maybe they wanted to go out on a drinking binge and so they needed some money to buy the alcohol. And so they would help themselves to a mistress's shawl or a pair of gloves or something and sell it in the second hand clothing markets, which were, you know, as big then as they are now, bigger, um, and and just get a little bit of wherewithal to do what they wanted to. So some of the crimes were crimes of absolute need, but mainly not. Uh, and the other one I'd like to talk about is the, the crime of uh, stealing a handkerchief, because I think that's one that, again, we think, gosh, stealing some, how badly off would you have to be <laughs> to want to take someone else's handkerchief out of their pocket. But this was a crime that that was taken more seriously. So compared to, I mean, a lot of shops in those days would have tables out in the front with the goods on display. And if someone just walked up and, and nicked something off one of those tables in the open street, that would be considered quite a low-level crime. But to take a handkerchief from someone's pocket makes it a much more personal crime. So they're actually in infiltrating your personal space. That made it a more serious crime. But also, handkerchiefs weren't like the direct equivalent of, of you know, paper tissues these days. They were... Um, often made from from fine fabrics like linens and silks and they were often they often had sentimental value as well that they were given as gifts um, to people so for a number of reasons the 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 handkerchief picked from someone's pocket really was a more serious crime uh, and it's not surprising that that there are a number of people who were transported for stealing handkerchiefs and uh, when I've gone through the old Bailey online where any any listener can um, can go and and make some queries and and put in handkerchief in the search bar and find see what they find um, you'll notice that it's often stole a handkerchief yes but also stole. Um, you know, 30 pounds of lead and candlesticks and, you know, six other things. So it's part of a haul rather than just a one-off. There are, there are some people who, who were transported for simply stealing one handkerchief, but it's pretty rare. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. 
But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. It's just the handkerchiefs that get the headlines. I wonder if you could give us a little bit more context about who was transported in general. From your suggestion there, it's it's petty criminals, people who are perhaps from the, the working classes, but not always the very poorest in society. Would that be a fair characterization? Yeah, and I guess I like to think of them as as not the abject poor, so not the people who are completely helpless, but the people who still have a bit of spirit <laughs> and ingenuity, the people who aren't taking it lying down, the people who, you know, they've got some initiative to go outside the law and take an opportunity when they see it coming up. Uh, so back in the 1980s, there was a big project run by economic historians out of the University of New South Wales, and they called it the Convict Workers Project. And, you know, remember the 80s, greed is good, Gordon Gecko, big shoulder pads, all of that. So people were thinking more about people's economic value, P- humans as sort of contributors to an economy rather than contributors to a society. And so they really looked at the convicts for the first time as economic assets. And so one of the things they did was looked at what they had said were their employable skills when they were asked by the convict authorities, which was something that they did regularly because convictism wasn't just a lottery. It was about matching useful skills to need. And so if you came and said, I'm a wheelwright, they're going to put you to work with a wheelwright so you can make wheels. They're not going to send you down the coal mines, for example. So they looked at all of these, uh, what people said about their job skills. And there's been a lot of, you know, questioning, well, were they just making it up? Were they a bit aspirational? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I was a lawyer. Sure you were. <laughs> um, but but it seems to match up. And there's a lot of evidence that they weren't, uh, you know, they weren't drawing too long about when they said what they could do. Um, and, and by looking at all that evidence, aggregating it for 20,000 convicts who were transported to New South Wales in the sort of mature period of, of transportation, they found that they were really an ordinary cross-section of the British working class. So that there were 
mainly people who were unskilled, but there were skilled people amongst them, both women and men. So there were women who who were highly skilled, like milliners um, and, and seamstresses and so on, and others who'd worked as general maids of all work and so on. But there were some groups that tended to be more represented. And so going back into the past, a lot of Australians like to think that the convicts were all these innocent country folk who were uh, done out of a livelihood by the Enclosure Acts and so on. Um, but when they looked more closely, and they mainly they were urban. There were some rural, there were more rural people from Ireland, uh, which was also a place from which convicts were being sent in very large numbers. And when they go a little bit later, as the Industrial Revolution takes hold, you're not getting many factory workers being transported. It's mainly people in the more traditional areas of employment. So so again, there's a sense that there's some selection process going on here and, and the idea that we don't really need factory workers in Australia. Maybe that person should have a different type of punishment. And the factory workers are in great demand in Britain. And I guess the other theory that's floated around for a long time was that there was some sort of underclass, criminal class. And that's, you know, what what Dickens was portraying in Oliver Twist, that whole idea that there were all these people that had no other job. They just lived off the fat of the land by picking pockets and, um, you know, breaking into houses and so on. And, and it really does seem that that didn't exist. That was a figment of imaginations and, and certainly was not who the people who were transported as convicts were. Uh, And just one other really interesting thing that Convict Workers Project found was that the convicts were more literate than the average in Britain as well. So again, this, this goes to this idea that they are not the very worst off. Something else that people have asked about on Instagram, including Maria von Rumer and Sigma Librarian, is the age of people that were transported were children transported and what and what was kind of the upper limit of people that would have been transported? Yeah, so there were children transported and um, there's been quite a bit of work done on this. There was even uh, a place in Tasmania, Van Diemen's Land, as it was called during the convict period, called Point Pure, with P-U-E-R, which was where young convicts were sent so that they would have... Um, special treatment and they would be away from the corrupting influence of the adult convicts. Uh, Similarly, in Sydney, there was a place called the Carter's Barracks, which was accommodation for younger convicts. So, um, yes, so there were some. I thought this might come up, so I did look up what I could find about the youngest convict. And um, from, from what I can see, there was a John Hudson who in 1783, when he was eight going on nine. That's what he told the court. He was an orphan and he'd been working as a chimney sweep and he was convicted of having broken into someone's house and stolen clothing and a pistol, which the pistol might have been the thing that that really turned things against dear John. And the homeowner said that he noticed in one of the rooms in his house a, a pane of glass that was broken quite high up and then on a table a sooty footprint and that matched exactly John Hudson's little nine-year-old foot. <laughs> it's just heartbreaking. Uh, but then the, the, if you look, again, if you look at what, what was said in court, 
there was definitely a, a strong recognition that this was a little kid and that, you know, they didn't want to be too harsh on him because he could have had a very harsh sentence for, for breaking in in that way and stealing a pistol. So they were kind and only convicted him of stealing. And the judge said that this was what they should do because he needed to be taken out of the situation he was in and given a second chance. And so it was really a mercy and a benefit to him to be transported because this was 1783. So I didn't even know it would be Australia. It was supposed to be going to the American colonies. Uh, and then um, because they didn't any longer have transportation there, he had to wait around for a while. And, and so he um, ended up that he was 14 years old by the time he actually made it to his destination. And so um, that was uh, five years later. And so he'd already served all but two years of his sentence by the time he made it here. Wow. And do we have any details at all about who some of the oldest people transported might be? Yeah, now I wasn't able to do that. And I've already mentioned that the average age was 26 when the convict workers looked at all of those convicts coming to New South Wales. Um, but some of them were coming on 21-year or life sentences. So there is a real sense uh, in Australia in terms of just the like stereotypes of convicts is that they're these old, grizzled, grey men missing a few teeth and, and so on. And that really does build up towards the end of the convict period because you've had people that have come out at age 26, but they've served their time and it's been a hard life. So by the time they're in their 50s, that's what they're looking at. And, and certainly, again, uh, right through the convict period, there were people who were still serving their sentences but were no longer capable of work. And so they had to be taken into various types of asylums they would end up in um, uh, and and you know, aged care really started in Australia looking after these convicts who were no longer able to look after themselves because of their age. I wanted to ask you about the physical transportation itself, getting over to Australia. As you say, it was no mean feat at this time. And Matt LFC has asked about the conditions on ships. I'm imagining they weren't that pleasant. Mm, no, pretty, pretty bad. They tried hard because, I mean, I guess one of the points I've been trying to make is that the convicts were not despised or looked upon as a burden. They were looked upon as an asset. So again, you do not want to waste your asset in the transportation process. They wanted them to be in a reasonable condition to be able to work on the other end. So convicts were fed the same sort of rations as the military were being given at the time. And that just in round numbers worked out to be about a pound of meat, um, usually preserved either beef or pork, um, a pound of flour or bread or hard tack, the, you know, the ship's biscuit um, for each person each day, for each man each day, lesser, lesser rations for women. So it was a lot more meat and more food than a lot of them would have been getting on a regular basis. Um, and that does not in any way mean that it was a healthy diet, but it was better than than some had had. Um, they weren't getting fresh fruit and vegetables unless they were in port during the voyage, and so many of them did suffer from scurvy, as 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 many seafarers did in this period. 
Um, the, the men were mainly kept below decks and just allowed to come up about once a week to wash the bodies and their clothes. They weren't initially issued with soap, but after a few years, they said, maybe it'd be a good idea if we issued them with some soap for the washing purposes. But there were surgeons assigned to each ship to keep them healthy. And the surgeons were provided with all of the latest medicines and special foods and so on that they could give to anyone who was ailing. They had a terrible time on the second fleet. So the ships that arrived in 1790 had about 25% of the convicts die on the way. So that shocked everybody. On the first fleet, hardly anybody died in in the, the one that left in 1787. The second fleet, yeah, quarter. And, and a lot of the ones who did arrive were in terrible condition and didn't survive very long in Australia. Was that because of disease outbreaks on that second fleet? It was. It was disease. It was malnutrition. The private contractors for the second fleet really tried to cut corners and they they didn't have all of the safeguards in place that they needed to to bring people safely for such a long distance. The first fleet took eight months to get from Portsmouth to Sydney Harbour. The rest of the, the, the voyages were shorter, but they'd still be, you know, four or five, even six months. So it's a long time um, to be keeping people well in those sorts of close living conditions, um, you know, inadequate preserved food, um, limited time out in the sunshine and fresh air and so on. Diseases could really take hold. But they were careful. They 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 examined everyone before they boarded and made sure that they weren't you know, visibly ill so that they weren't bringing contagious diseases on board with them. And, you know, they did have the, the medical supervision. So it was horrible. I mean, I'm not trying to make excuses, but um, if we looked at a measure being death rates, other than the second fleet, they were very low. And and there were a lot of measures put in place to to ensure that that convicts arrived relatively healthy and and ready to to start to repay their debt to society. So you've already told us a little bit about what life was like when convicts arrived in Australia, but this is something that Walter Fist and a couple of other people have asked about. How did the inmates live when they arrived in Australia? Walter Fist has asked, were there buildings like the prisons in Europe? But how were they managed? How were they kept in check? So no, there weren't prisons like there were in Europe, but in fact, there weren't really prisons in Europe during most of the convict transportation period, and that's why they were being transported. So there, there really wasn't, there weren't the facilities to keep people for long periods of time imprisoned in the UK. And they decided, you know, that's not how we want to do this. We can get more use out of these people in a different place. So that's what transportation was all about. Over time, through the period, they did start to experiment with the idea of penitentiaries, places where people would do um, regular work and have religious instruction and quiet time for reflection and so on. And, And so that's why ultimately transportation does come to an end, because we do go into this era that we're still in, where shutting someone up tight in a prison is considered to be the appropriate way to punish them, what was called penal servitude from the mid-19th century. So when they arrived, the idea was that it was an open-air prison. The walls of the prison were really, you know, for for Sydney, the Pacific Ocean on one side, uh, the intimidating bush and the uncertainties of of, um, what sort of reception you get from Aboriginal people on the other side. So they weren't chained up. They weren't 
closed in particular places. They had to be mustered several times a day. And so if you didn't turn up for the head count, they'd go out looking for you. But yeah, generally speaking, there was a fair amount of freedom and, and trust. And when the convicts were working in the government service, they only had to work till 3 p.m. Um, and then the rest of the day, they could do pretty much what they wanted to. So they, they had their own huts. There'd be six of them living in a hut. They could go back and, and just hang out there if they wanted to. Um, they could sit around fires and tell stories. Or if they were industrious, they could try to um, plant a garden or they could go off foraging in the bush. They could go fishing or collecting she um, shellfish along the harbour. Um, so, yeah, there was quite a bit of, of freedom and, and even an expectation that convicts would continue to use that initiative to try to improve their lives a little bit for themselves and not just be totally dependent on the government. It's really interesting to hear about the freedoms that people had that you might not anticipate. Um, and C. Jacob has asked about the stories of some of the women sent over. I guess initially convict women were kind of overlooked and, and dismissed as damned whores, if you don't mind me using that sort of language. But one of the, um, the lieutenants on the first fleet, Ralph Clark, described the convict women as all damned whores. And he was actually on a ship that was carrying women and then took on some uh, livestock in South Africa. And he was very pleased to have the, the women replaced with sheep and cattle and so on. He thought they were much nicer traveling companions to have with him. So that was some people's opinion. Ralph Clark did then later have an affair with a convict woman and had a, a child with her. So I think his, maybe his estimation of them changed over time. But anyway, um, a lot of historians dismissed them as, as these, you know, women of the, the gutter, sex workers, prostitutes, um, not worth thinking about. But they were a much more diverse group than that. And no one was transported for being a prostitute because it wasn't a transportable offence. Remember, it was about property crime. And so unless you were a prostitute and you stole something from one of your clients, that could mean lead to, to transportation. But not just being a sex worker itself wasn't, wasn't a sufficient crime. But yes, when the women arrived, there was always this sense as there often is in any institution, that men are the norm and women are a little bit different, a little bit difficult. You know, we don't have facilities for women. We don't have jobs for women. The sort of tough work of, of pioneering that they wanted to have undertaken, they thought, well, women don't do that work in our society according to our gender norms. But of course, any society also needs people to do what's called the reproduction of labor. So, so the things that I mentioned before about laundry and cooking and, and cleaning and so on. And so women were absorbed into the workforce really quite effectively. But there was a sense that they were quite vulnerable in this um, heavily masculinized environment. And so they started to develop institutions called female factories. They were places to put women to work. And the factory part of it was that they were often making cloth. Um, they also did commercial laundry. Um, and, and so they had work for the women to do there. But they served multiple purposes and they had different classes of women there. And so the, the first class were women who had maybe just arrived or had been assigned out to a private employer and then had come back through no fault of their own and were waiting to be assigned to someone else or to find a government job. And then there were ones who had been returned with some sort of complaint against them 
possibly in some cases because they were pregnant, that they become pregnant on assignment. And so they were allowed to, to live in the factory, have their baby, bring the baby up for a few years, after which time the baby would go to an orphanage and they would go back to work for another private employer. And then the third or crime class, and that was people that had actually done something wrong again in Australia. And these female factories were essentially jails for them and they would spend a period of time and they could be in solitary confinement, they could be put to to hard labor there. So, so yes, there were some um, um, additional. I think they would say supports for women, but for women, maybe they felt them as constraints. But a lot of women liked going back to the factory and would actually try to be sent to the factory because they could hang out with other women, whereas otherwise they were often very isolated out on rural properties and or in someone else's home, and they didn't get to have that that sense of camaraderie and 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 a bit of fun and and so on, which they were able to to have moments and snatches of in the factories. And I guess that when so many people were there for such a long time, bonds, as you say, must have formed naturally. Do we also see people forming romantic bonds and and starting families in convict uh, settlements? Yeah, well, I guess the other thing I didn't mention about the, uh, the female factories is that they were marriage markets as well. And so men who were looking for a wife uh, would go along to the female factory and they'd bring out all the people that were eligible to be married and they would stand there and look at one another and look each other up and down and think, oh, she looks strong or something. And so the man coming to the factory could make an offer and the woman could accept or reject. Um, so there was no forcible marriage, but there was lots of encouragement to marriage because they really did, the the authorities saw marriage as and family formation as something that would settle people down, start to make this society a more like a normal society um, where, where people were paired off. And, and they really encouraged it. So in the early years, when, when someone came to the end of their sentence, they would be given land and seeds and the use of, of livestock. They could have other convicts assigned to them to, to help them develop a property. And if they were married, they got extra land. And if they had children, they got extra acreage for those children and so on. So there was really, yeah, there were, there were benefits to being married and incentives to, to enter that holy state. Um, although not all these marriages worked out and, and the whole, I guess, the idea of romantic love was really not something that would have been important for all of the people at this time. There were a lot more pragmatic uh, pairings, I would say, were going on. Absolutely. A lot of people on Instagram and Twitter, including Jess and Carrick Bro, have asked about what happened at the end of people's sentences. Primarily, they've asked, did people go back to back to Britain? Uh, you suggested earlier that that was very difficult to do. So how many people did make it back to Britain? And for those who didn't, what kind of futures lay ahead? Yeah, I, I don't have any knowledge of any percentage that made it back, but it would be tiny. I mean, I would think in the order of 1%. So um, there was one woman in the early years named Mary Bryant. And um, so she was one of the the first fleeters. And uh, she married in Sydney 
and had two children and her husband was a fisherman, an official fisherman for the colony. That was his job. And so he had access and knowledge of boats. And so they, with seven other convicts and their two young children, uh, took off one night and they navigated all the way to Timor. And I don't know how people's geographical knowledge is, but that's right, you know, through the Great Barrier Reef, around the top of Australia to what's now East Timor. Uh, So incredible, incredible journey that they were able to undertake. They got there and they they spun a story that they'd been shipwrecked. And so they were these innocent travellers who'd been shipwrecked and they were in need of aid. But it wasn't long, like a matter of weeks, before they were found out as escaped convicts. And so then it was decided that they needed to go back to Britain to be tried for this offence of having run away, absconded. And so very sadly, all of Mary Bryant's family, her two children and her husband died in in these voyages, you know, to Timor and then onward. And uh, it was only she and another, I think, four of the original seven convicts who actually made it to Britain, where she was put on trial again and convicted of having returned from transportation. But she was subsequently pardoned, and she was pardoned just at the end of her initial seven-year sentence. So she had this massive adventure of having gone to the other side of the world and did end up being able to to live free uh, back in Britain for at least a short period of time. But um, for most women, it was very hard to to be able to go back. For men, it was slightly more accessible because they could sign on as crew on ships and work a passage back. So that was possible after they'd finished their sentence. So once they'd finished their sentence, they were free. They they could do whatever they wanted to do. But really by that time, many people had accustomed themselves to Australia and uh, didn't necessarily want to go home. Now, that's not true of all. There was one fellow named Matthew Everingham who was transported again in the very early days. He'd been a servant to an attorney and he stole a couple of law books. And so he kept writing back to a patron. So we have a good sense of what his experience was like. And he had a few fumbles along the way and got in trouble and so on. But because he was able to use his skills as a clerk, he he didn't have to do the really hard work that some of the convicts did. He was given a land grant. He set up a farm. He married another convict. They had nine children in the end. And he did very well for himself. And so in these letters, you can see his attitudes changing over time. And at first he's saying, all I'm doing is working as hard as I can, saving up all my money. I'm going to be home before you know it. This is great. Thank you very much. Could you please send me X, Y, and Z? Because we can't get them here. He was always asking for something in these letters. By the time he got to, you know, I don't know, 10, 15 years in Australia, he was changing his tune and saying, actually, things are going pretty well. He was a respectable member of society. He'd left behind his convict days and he was happy to live out his life in Australia. It was tens of thousands of people who were transported. And so there's so many different experiences. So the convict transportation period came to an end, as you say, in 1868. Why? Basie Dinks has asked, did the cost of transportation break even? I wonder if we could broaden that out and you could tell us a bit about why it did come to to an end and why the British state thought it was no longer worth pursuing. I think it has more to do in each case, if we look at how transportation came to an end in each of the convict colonies, and so there were three, that none of them really were about 
cost. So in New South Wales, which was the first one where it started in Sydney, it came to an end in the in 1840 and then in practice and then at the end of the 1840s in in law. Um, And it was really because the other people that lived in New South Wales, the the free colonists who'd come, didn't want convicts anymore. They thought convicts were dragging them down. Convicts were undercutting free workers because they were still working for free. And so if you're a person trying to sell your labour, you do not want a convict right beside you working for nothing. So they didn't like that. And they, they just thought, um, that this was Britain's garbage being sent to them and that they had to pay for the police and they had to pay for the jails and that the police and jails were mainly looking after the convicts and they didn't think that was right. They thought it was almost a form of taxation without representation. And they just didn't like the idea of being in a convict colony. They wanted to to be able to improve their reputation so, so that was the end of it in, in New South Wales. That was accepted and, and implemented. And then Van Diemen's Land, which later became Tasmania, became the main receptacle for the convicts that came through in the 1840s. And they had a different set of circumstances that brought it to an end, and that was really the gold rushes that occurred in New South Wales and Victoria in the very early 1850s. And so... Suddenly, instead of Australia being this convict dumping ground, as many people in Britain had thought about it, it became this land of gold that everybody wanted to get to. And people were selling up all their goods and chattels in Britain to to buy a passage out to Australia. And so suddenly it didn't really make much sense that you are giving a free trip to someone who's stolen a loaf of bread or some honey or potatoes, but other people have to pay for it. So it was, um, yeah, early 50s, 1852, that they stopped transporting people to Van Diemen's Land. And then a couple of years later that they changed the name of the colony to Tasmania. So again, starting this erasure to say, "Hmm, no, no, that convict place used to send, no, that's not us. We're Tasmania. We're brand new. We're not Van Diemen's Land. But then at the same time, they're starting transportation to Western Australia. And and so that starts in 1850, just before the gold rushes um, commence. And and it's on a different system now. These are people who have gone through a, a period in a penitentiary who are supposed to have been sort of somewhat redeemed by that and are now ready to have almost a probation by being sent to Western Australia, where they will have a little bit more freedom, where they will be set out to work. And by this time, these were more serious uh, offenders who were being sent. So these were rapists and murderers and um, people that had committed military offences and so on. But they had already been through this, this period of starting their punishment in a different form. And so I think by 1868 that that the whole idea that you need the transportation at the end had had sort of run its course. Um, the people in Western Australia were really keen to have convicts sent to them because they really wanted the investment that came with it. So they'd seen how well it worked in the eastern states to have that free labour to build infrastructure. And so when they were approached about this idea, they said, yes, please, because they were struggling. Um, but yeah, by 1868, I think the whole experiment had had just sort of reached a natural end in terms of Australia. And I wonder if we could end with a bit from you on the impact 
on Australia. This is something Naomi Warwick has asked about. The impact on, obviously, Australia's Aboriginal people, but also the sense of a new forms of nationhood in Australia at the time. Yeah, look, I'm really glad that we've come to that because I don't think we can talk about this topic without always bearing in mind what it meant for the original inhabitants of Australia. And so um, Australia's Indigenous people, one of the oldest civilizations on Earth, it's like 50,000 years that they've been living here, that we have archaeological evidence for it. So, you know, 250 different languages uh, occupying the entire continent, and then these new people start to invade their country, their, their space, starting close to where I am now. I'm on Daramaragal land in northern Sydney. And it's just devastating for them. And, and it's, it's not even the violence that, that later ensues. Uh, it's not the resource competition that, that happens as Aboriginal people are excluded from water sources and, and so on. But it's the disease that comes with the convicts, um, because they they carry all kinds of different diseases that were were still you know relatively serious like measles and smallpox, but that just devastated these populations and reduced the populations in many instances by about ninety percent, and that that went well ahead of the frontier of of actual occupation by the the invaders by the British settler colonists. So it's it's just a devastating time and we really need to take that into consideration that it starts and accelerates a process of colonization. So Britain might have colonized Australia otherwise, but without the labor force of convicts, it would have happened much more slowly. It would have been very hard to con- convince um British people to say, would you like to go down to the other side of the world? You know, we don't know much about it. Um, (laughs) It's a long voyage. You might not survive it, but would you come? And then people would say, well, you know, not not really. We've got other options. So uh, the convicts ended up being right on the the, the spearhead of this colonization and, and speared. I mean, they were literally being speared by Aboriginal people because they were the ones who were right out on the edge as shepherds and, and agricultural workers and so on. They were vulnerable. Um, but then they also returned the violence and, and they were involved in some of the massacres of Aboriginal people, like the 1838 Mile Creek Massacre was was almost all convicts and ex-convicts who committed it. So they're they're right at the heart of things. They're certainly not innocent in this expropriation of Aboriginal people. But looking at it from the British government's point of view, they did put a lot of money into this experiment and they kept very careful accounts and they're committed to spending the money, but they don't want to spend any more than they need to. But I think the British government gets a lot back because they they get rid of all of these people that they didn't want from their society. They do enable them to to provide a return to that society um, by laying the groundwork for what become very prosperous colonies uh, that provide goods back to Britain, wool, probably the leading one, but also wood and minerals and all kinds of things. Um, Also a a place to which free emigration can take place that, again, reduces the the sort of pressure of population that was being felt in Britain. And then, you know, in the longer term, um, people to send off to colonial wars and, and so on. So there are many, many benefits that flow back to 
Britain, uh, but at great cost to not only the convicts who got caught up in this, but also the Aboriginal people who were colonised through the process. That was Dr Nancy Cushing, Associate Professor of History at Australia's University of Newcastle. Her book, A History of Crime in Australia, is published by Routledge. And if you enjoyed this conversation, you might also be interested in a podcast that I recorded with the historian Meg Foster, all about Australian bushrangers, essentially the highwaymen of colonial era Australia. Search for Australian bushrangers in your podcast feeds to bring that up. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.